Lord God, when a voice from heaven comes forth, it makes our, our, our ears perk up a little bit more. And yet, Father, the book that we open up each Sunday morning and have put before us, the book that hopefully we open up each day and read and pray over, Lord, is just as much of a voice from heaven, Lord. And from cover to cover, it cries out that you rejoice over your son, Jesus Christ, the one who laid down his life in payment for our sins, who is the king, who is the king even still coming, Lord, whom we rejoice over today. Lord, we want to exemplify and exalt what it is to rejoice in your son, Jesus Christ. And to do so, Father, we want to look to your example today. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. My curiosity and imagination were often piqued as a kid when we would drive as a family through the city at night. Up in the sky, there would sometimes be searchlights that were crisscrossing each other. You know what I mean? Directing everyone's attention to what was down below on the ground at the base of those lights. And as a rural kid, and when I say big city, we're talking Des Moines. <laughs> as a rural kid, such big city lights generated a great deal of intrigue in my mind. What could possibly be at the bottom of this seemingly magical display? Could it be directing us to a ball game or to a monster truck rally? Or even better, could it be something akin to the bat signal? calling upon someone heroic to save the day for the beleaguered people who are down below. But I would typically be disappointed when I discovered the reality of what was at the base of all of those lights because it was usually a car dealership. <laughs> now, I would guess, I, I was going to say no offense, Jeff, because, but he isn't here. I should have said no offense, Jerry and Sue. <laughs> Now, I would guess that some of you, at least when you were teenagers, have been involved in some musical or theatrical productions. And as you know, it is vital for the person manning the spotlight to keep the focus upon the guy who is doing the singing or upon the girl who is delivering the speech. In a dark room, such a light directs everyone's attention to the most important person at that moment allowing the audience to fully appreciate what is being sung or said. Searchlights and spotlights both direct people's attention to what is deemed important. Their sole purpose is to call the attention of others to someone or something significant. This is similar to what we see today because in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, it directs our attention to Jesus, the most important person of all time. If you have been here for the last couple of months, you know that we have heard quite a bit about him from a number of people so far. We've heard what the angel thought about Jesus, that he would save his people from their sins. We've seen what the Magi thought about this king, for they fell down and worshipped him. We've also considered what John the Baptist thought, that he was not even worthy to carry the sandals of this Messiah. 
But now we get to witness what God the Father thinks. As the skies were opened and his voice came from heaven, declaring his infinite value that God the Father places upon his Son. And in witnessing this, we can conclude that the Father's beaming spotlight points directly to his beloved Son. For he places all of the emphasis upon him here and reveals that Jesus is the source of his ultimate pleasure. God the Father directs the focus of all the world to Jesus Christ. And we should adopt the exact same focus in our lives here at Riverside. According to this text, there are two reasons why Jesus should be our ultimate focus as individuals, as families, and as a church. And those two reasons are, number one, Jesus obeyed God's will. And number two, Jesus is God's delight. Now, the first reason why Jesus should be our ultimate focus is that Jesus obeyed God's will. John the Baptist had been baptizing. If you remember from last week, John was the individual who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, with an important message for the people of Israel. If you remember chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. According to John, the grounds for this repentance, that about face wherein we turn away from the ugliness of our sin and run to God for mercy, the grounds for this repentance was the message that the kingdom of heaven in all of its grand significance was near and about to be realized on earth. And as I said last week, this kingdom is the full reign of God upon the earth, accomplishing all His holy will and saving all of His chosen people. It is God's reign in heaven coming down to us in all of its power and all of its glory. The kingdom of heaven is the manifestation of God's sovereign, saving reign over everything and everyone. And it has been realized in part already through Jesus' first coming and will be fully realized when Jesus comes again. John came preaching this message, urging people to repent of their sins and baptizing them as a cleansing symbol that their hearts were ready for the kingdom of God. But when Jesus came to be baptized by John, John tried to prevent him. It says in verses 13 and 14, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So Jesus wants to be baptized, and John attempts to prevent him, and for good reason. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Why would he need to undergo the symbol that prepared people's hearts for the coming kingdom of God? After all... He is the king. Now realize that from Luke's gospel, there's four gospels, Matthew, 
Mark, Luke, and John. Four Gospels, four evangelistic narratives that speak of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew's one of them. But in Luke's Gospel, we know that John the Baptist and Jesus Christ were relatives, probably cousins. And we know that Mary, Jesus' mother, and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, had a close relationship. And that Elizabeth was even overjoyed with the news of the child that Mary carried inside of her. Listen to this exchange between Elizabeth, John's mother, and Mary, Jesus' mother, when they were both still pregnant from Luke 1. Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now I note all of this to say that I think it's only reasonable to conclude here in Matthew chapter 3 that John knew about Jesus and knew well the things that had been said about Jesus up until this point. John may not have had all of the information at that time necessary to conclude beyond any doubt whatsoever that Jesus was the Messiah or that Jesus was the Son of God, certainly, but John certainly knew one thing to be true. He was not worthy to carry Jesus' sandals, let alone baptize him. Verse 14, that's essentially what John says. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John is saying, I'm the one who needs to repent of sin. I'm the one who needs to be prepared for the kingdom of heaven, not you. I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me, John says, essentially. Don't you just love the proper humility of this man, John the Baptist, here? He, Jesus, must increase, John says. I must decrease. And John tried to prevent Jesus from undertaking this baptism. D.A. Carson writes of this. He says, Earlier John had difficulty believing the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. Now he has trouble baptizing Jesus because his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. But Jesus was baptized for an important reason. Listen to verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. Now what does Jesus mean here when he says, It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness? Many have concluded that by undergoing John's baptism here, Jesus foreshadows or anticipates his own baptism unto death. His death on the cross, whereby he, Jesus, secured a righteous standing for God's people. The idea is that this baptism pictured Christ's immersion, his baptism into death, which brought a righteous standing before God for all of those people who believe in Jesus Christ. They equate this word righteousness here with the teaching of the Apostle Paul in places like the book of Romans, who used that word righteousness in a judicial sense before the judgment of God. For instance, 
Paul writes in Romans 3, 24, of sinners, he says they are justified, which means to be declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And my friends, that verse is the heart, it is the soul, it is the center of our Christian faith. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, His righteous life that He laid down, shedding His blood on the cross, is, is made payment for your sins, in that all of your sins that you've committed were put upon Him and paid for, and all the righteousness of His life that He merited is, merited, is, is given to you. So that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer in God's eyes seen as sinner. You are now seen as righteous saint. You have a righteous standing before God even though there's acts of unrighteousness in your life. The great exchange that Christ takes our sin on our behalf and we get his righteousness in place when we put our faith in him. That's the glory of the gospel. It's the center of it. And that's so very true and Paul so very clearly lays it out in Romans. But this conclusion that that's what Jesus is saying here, I think is faulty. I think it has at least three flaws. Number one, I think that seems to read a lot of information back into Matthew's text, if that's what he's saying. For instance, although Jesus certainly did die to secure a righteous standing for God's people. Praise God! The text nowhere here equates this water baptism to the coming death of Jesus Christ. That concept is foreign from this part of the gospel. To make it say that, I think you would have to make some rather large assumptions about this text, and I don't think this text supports it. So I don't think that's the best option. Secondly, why I don't think that's the best option, why I think it's flawed to think that about this, is that this simply can't be a reference to Christ's effort by way of the cross to secure a righteous standing for God's people, because notice Jesus' words carefully to John. He says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Thus, it is the action of both Jesus and John that fulfills this righteousness here. So it's, it's not just Jesus alone who he's speaking of as the actor. Do you follow what I'm saying? Number three, why I think that interpretation of this passage that other good men have taken, why I think that's flawed. Number three, Matthew's frequent usage of the word righteousness in his gospel is not the same as Paul's usage in Romans. Again, Paul uses that word righteous in a legal sense of one being declared righteous in the courtroom of God's justice. Jesus pays our sin debt. Our sins are forgiven. The merit of Christ's righteousness is given to us. And we stand before the court, before the judge, and he says, innocent. He says, righteous. He says, you are my beloved saint, my son, my daughter. He declares us that. Matthew though, Matthew, though, uses the word righteousness seven times in this gospel. It's an important theme to him. And at every occurrence, he uses it with reference to proper action, not judicial standing. 
with reference to proper action for doing the right thing in God's eyes or conforming oneself to God's will or God's plan. For instance, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So that righteousness is an act of righteousness. It is an outward display of righteousness. It is an action, not a judicial standing. Instead, I think Jesus is declaring here that his baptism and John's act of baptizing him right alongside, that this act is an action that obeys God's will for both of them. It fulfills all righteousness, I think, in that it exemplifies a righteous willingness to obey what God has commanded. I think Jesus is essentially saying to John, here in verse 15, let it be so now, because it is fitting, it is good, and it is proper to obey all the righteous will of God. Beginning right here with this baptism. But the question still remains, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why was, why was this the Father's will? Why did God the Father want Jesus to go to John, have John plunge him into water and bring him? Why did God want that to happen for his son? Well, Jesus did this to affirm before God and his people, I think, that he was determined to obey his Father no matter what, even unto the very end. Begone right here in the stream of the river Jordan. And he would go down into the water and undergo the same humble symbol as the rest of the people, identifying himself with the king who was prophesied and identifying himself with them personally. He needed no cleansing, my friends. Jesus did not need to repent, and Jesus himself was the king who was prophesied. But as a servant to God's people, he began his ministry with an act that identified himself with them. The humble servant Jesus began with an act that identified himself with sinners. I think that's what's going on. This obedience of Jesus, this commitment to fulfill all righteousness, is extremely important to us if you don't know that. It is extremely important. His obedience to the will of the Father is vital to us. The fact that Jesus is willing to say to God's directives, yes, I will follow that Father, is extremely important to us. In fact, it is one reason why Jesus should be our ultimate focus. Consider with me what happens near the end of this gospel. Hold your hand here and flip over to chapter 26. Matthew 26, and notice with me verses 38 and 39, when Jesus is in the garden awaiting his arrest and execution at the cross and resurrection from the dead. Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus prays to God the Father and he says this, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, grasp this. Jesus has always had this perfect relationship, fellowship, enjoyment with his Father God. Throughout all the ages unto eternity, he had enjoyed that. And now, he's facing in the garden that night the prospect of very soon not just having all the physical pain, all the gruesome, horrific things done to his body and his laying down of his actual life, but separation from the Father itself. Cut apart from him for a time. And Jesus, in one real way, does not want that. Because who wants to suffer? And he says, as he falls on his face, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. A cup is a reference to wrath. It's a reference to suffering. It's a reference to pain. Jesus is saying, I'm about to drink this cup, and it's really going to hurt. It's going to be the worst agony that has ever been experienced on this earth by far. I'm about to drink it. He says, my father, if it be possible, oh, let that cup pass from me. But then he says... Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then they came, they arrested him in the garden, and he began to drink the cup. Out of obedience to his father's will, even as he faced a great sorrow unto death, he was willing to take the cup of suffering that was handed to him. And this was the cup of suffering that you and I deserve that he took on our behalf. Instead of unrighteousness, Jesus was righteous. He said, not as I will, but as you will. And this righteousness of Christ means everything for us. For if our Savior had not been willing to obey the Father and go to the cross, drinking the cup down to the dregs for us, if he not endured the pain and shed his blood for us, we would have no hope, we would be dead in our sins, and we would face the wrath of an almighty God. So let us... Praise God and put the focus upon Jesus Christ because he was such an obedient son. Second reason why Jesus should be our ultimate focus is that Jesus is God's delight. After Jesus was baptized, he received a heavenly response in the sky. Verse 16, back in chapter 3 says that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The pronouns get a little bit confusing here, and we're really not all that certain who they are ultimately referring to. He says the heavens were opened to him. Him. Who? Him. John or Jesus? Who is it that saw the heavens opened. Well, probably Jesus, since he's the primary person being referred to here. And then it says, he saw the Spirit of God descending. Who saw it? John or Jesus? Again, probably Jesus, since he's the focus of this text, though John may very well have experienced the whole thing right alongside of him. 
The point is that once Jesus obeyed in the baptism, God immediately responded from heaven in a most incredible fashion. The sky parted for a moment. For a moment, there was a sight line from earth to God's glory above. And coming from the clouds was the Spirit of God, either resembling the appearance of a dove itself or swooping down from the sky in the manner that a dove would swoop. And he descended upon Jesus, providing Jesus with the spiritual power for his coming ministry. It's not that Jesus didn't already have access to God's Spirit. It's that God's Spirit was now coming upon him in an official, public way to show forth the Father's great favor upon the Son. This was his ordination. This was his installation as the Messiah, as the Christ. This was the moment the Father God said to all of his people below, My approval is upon my Son and is upon his ministry on my behalf. The one who had always been God's son. The one who had always enjoyed the father's approval. Was now publicly, officially declared before the human race to be the Christ. Now I don't know what John saw at that moment. But I bet you his jaw was hanging down to the ground. Then, the voice came from heaven, revealing the Father's great delight in His Son. Verse 17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The words in this verse reflect words from two Old Testament prophecies. And Matthew is revealing that they are connected together now into one, into one person. And because I want you to see how the Bible fits together, how the promises of this one who would come are now being brought together in these simplified expressions like we find here, I want you to turn with me and look at these two prophecies. Look with me at Psalm, first of all, chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. And notice with me verses 5 through 8. Psalm chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Now, I've actually been preparing you for this because twice since we've started Matthew, this text has been our call to worship passage. This has a ton to say about the king who would come. I would strongly encourage you to go spend some real time in that even this afternoon on the Lord's Day. The Psalms, chapter 2, notice verses 5 through 8. It says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth 
your possession. God would send His King, He says, my King, the one who would bring justice and fear to all of those who reject God as King. He says, I will set my King over my people. He promises that. And this King that He speaks of would be God's Son. He says, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Jesus wasn't born here in Psalm 2, just as Jesus didn't have a beginning in Matthew's Gospel. He's always been the eternally begotten Son of God, the one who's always come from God. God would set His King over His people, and this King would be God's Son. And notice, all the nations will be His heritage, which is a word that means possession, all the peoples of the earth will be the people of this king, he says. And he says all the earth will belong to him. Not just a little strip of land in Palestine, but all the land from Florida all the way to China. Now, go to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. And notice with me verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. It says this. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. So God would send his servant the one God upholds, the one God has chosen, the one in whom God's soul delights, it says. God, Isaiah prophesies, would send the one who brings delight to God's soul. God would put his spirit upon this individual. He will bring forth justice to the nations, all nations, all people's lands and tribes. And notice the gentility of this one whom God would send. He would not be known for his shouting or yelling at needy people like a madman or a man on a stool with a bullhorn yelling at people. He would be gentle, willing to suffer on their behalf. It says he would be caring and tender with people like one who holds and protects a bruised reed an injured stem of a flower that's been broken is beginning to be falling over. He, he holds it and he protects it, helping it gain back its strength. Like one, it says, who instead of letting the flame go out of a candle, he helps along the faintly burning wick, which means giving it a gentle blow of air that the oxygen moving might make it glow bright like it once did. 
And this one in whom God's soul delights would not grow faint or become discouraged, but he would accomplish God's will of establishing justice on all the earth, it says. This servant of the Lord would come, and in him God would delight. Now both of these texts, if you flip back to Matthew 3, both of these texts are brought together in verse 17 in God's word from heaven. And I want to read that again. Chapter 3, verse 17, Matthew's gospel. It says, Behold, a voice from seven, a voice from heaven said, catch the language, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. A voice, God's voice came from heaven and said something truly astonishing. This, this person, the one who was just baptized by John, the one of whom the angel spoke about, the one who the Magi worshipped on their knees, this is my beloved Son, His eternally begotten, forever adored, one and only Son, whom He loves above everything else. This is my beloved Son, He says, with whom I am well pleased. This is the language of delight. This is the language of satisfaction. This is the language of joy and happiness. God is telling all the world here through this gospel that he is well pleased, that he is full of delight and satisfaction and joy in his son. My dear friends, God has just revealed what it is that makes him happy. And though many things bring joy to the heart of our God, the person of his Son is his ultimate pleasure. Now, I have read plenty of books by a guy named John Piper. You go to a pastor's conference, a conference with a lot of preaching by pastors like I did yesterday, and you hear a lot of references from John Piper, and I did too. In fact, after several guys had, I kept waiting to see who would be the first guy who didn't quote him. <laughs> Eventually there was someone. And I have no problem with that because I want to quote someone who loves the Bible, loves the gospel of Jesus Christ, and thinks hard on texts of Scripture and then with passion and joy relates it through preaching and through good books. I have no problem with that. And I have read many of John Piper's books and perhaps my favorite of them is his book entitled, The Pleasures of God. If there's one book I would love to have everyone in this room read, well, two, it would be The Pleasures of God by John Piper, and then Desiring God by John Piper. Well, in that book, he draws out chapter by chapter all the things that bring pleasure to God. It's a pretty simple premise. What makes God happy? And then chapter after chapter after chapter, he uses scripture to show all of the things that make God happy. He's happy in creation. At the bottom of the ocean, there are critters, there are, there are, there are little living organisms that human beings have never seen, ever. But we know they're there. 
Why are they there? Because God rejoices over the things that he's made. And even though no one gets to see those and no one gets to see the backside of the universe and the glorious things that are there, God sees them and he rejoices over them. He says, I did that. Praise be my name. And he's right to do so. And he's the God who delights in his people whom he's elected and foreordained from the, for the foundation of the world to be his sons and daughters. He rejoices over them. Absolutely sure. But, but, he ultimately, primarily rejoices in his son. I have now begun to see the significance of that question. What is it that makes God happy? What is it that brings him pleasure? Where does God find his delight? I have learned the significance of that question. And I have now begun to see the significance of that question all over the place. Now let me share with you a quote from Pastor Piper's book. When we say that God loves his son, we are not talking about a love that is self-denying, sacrificial, or merciful. We are talking about a love of delight and pleasure. God is not stooping to pity the undeserving when he loves his son. That is how God loves us. It is not how he loves his son. He is well pleased with his son. His soul delights in the son. When he looks at his son, he enjoys and admires and cherishes and prizes and relishes what he sees. The first great pleasure of God is his pleasure in his son. End quote. Now, I get that a little bit because I have three. And when I see them do just little things, little neat things, or I see them act in a good way, I'm amazed, and I love that, and I delight in that. And if you have had kids, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. You delight in those things. Now, now can you imagine that your son is the spitting image, is the exact express representation of God? How high would your delight be I had never thought of this. I had never considered this. But now, God's loving joy for his son pops out at me all over the place in Scripture. Back in Proverbs chapter 8, it speaks of this person called wisdom. It capitalizes the W. It's a personified person. It's, it's, it's wisdom. And I agree with most in thinking that this wisdom is an expression of the pre-incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. Don't have time to tease that out. But it says in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 27 and 30, these words, When he, God, established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, then I was was beside him like a master workman 
And hear this. And I was daily his delight. Can you imagine God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit with his power working, creating the world, and stepping back, and basking in each other's glory, recognizing that you have just created this. And then you call it good, and even very good. The intimacy between the Father and the Son is off the charts. Matthew chapter 11 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. And catch this. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. He's not talking about casual knowledge. He's talking about relational intimacy. There's no one who gets it like Jesus does with the Father and the Father does with Jesus. They know each other. The relationship is deep. It's perfect. In John 3, verse 35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is his beloved Son. He adores the Son. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 1, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It is so easy to pass over little words like that when you read scripture, but don't. Into the kingdom of God's, not just his son, not just the one who says, okay, it'll be you. His beloved son, the one in whom his soul delights. And God gives this son of his the highest place of exaltation, when in Philippians chapter 2 it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He makes him to be the king of all because his delight is in this king. As Jonathan Edwards wrote, the infinite happiness of the Father consists in the enjoyment of his Son. My friends, the obedient, suffering servant, the one who willingly identified with us through John's baptism, is the apple of God's eye. In Jesus, the Father is well-pleased, and all his admiring focus is upon him. The Father's beaming spotlight points directly to his beloved Son. And this text is telling all the world to think like the Father and put all of our focus upon this beloved Son. This demands that Jesus be our ultimate focus. And this is exactly, I think, what he means in Matthew 17. And if you bear with me one more time, go there with me. Matthew 17, and look at verse 5. This is called the transfiguration. This is the time when Jesus took Peter and James and John, three of his disciples, up on top of a mountain, and it says he was transfigured before them. He was arrayed in glorious array, like the king should be arrayed. 
And note verse 5, Peter was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then you tell me, what does it say? Listen to him. What did God say after pronouncing that his delight, his pleasure, was in his son? He said, listen to him. We must put the focus of our hearts, opening up the ears of our heads upon King Jesus and all that he has said and all that he has done. We too must delight in God's Son, and in doing that, we must listen to Him. Now, I have three brief exhortations as we finish up today. Number one, put the focus of your life upon the Savior. First of all, know Him, having repented of your sins and having believed in Jesus, receiving this good God as yours. And then, live your life with the desire of being as happy as you possibly can be, not in the things of this earth, though God's good gifts can certainly contribute, but finding your ultimate happiness in relationship with God's Son. Did you know that God wants you to be as happy as you can be? Did you know that God commands you to be happy? That word, rejoice, in the verse, rejoice in the Lord always, is an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He commands us to be happy. And the reason that God can command Christians to be happy, always happy, is because, come what may, we have Jesus. Because knowing Him in His Word, where we listen to His instructions for our lives, and more than that, see the expression of His good, glorious, loving, and just character, when we behold that, we want to know more of that. And in, know more in, and in trying to know more of that, we delight in that. Oh, hungry people are happy people. Hungry people, hungry for the spiritual things of God, are happy people. So put your focus upon the Savior. Also, number two, put the focus of your family upon the Son. There are a lot of things that moms and dads can teach their kids, but they can teach them nothing more, nothing better than delighting in the person of Jesus Christ. Because when they see that, that's something they can't explain. That's not some moralistic thing that other people have also adopted. 
The people who relish in Jesus Christ are the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And when sons and daughters of human beings see moms and dads relishing in the person of Jesus Christ, they see the glory of Jesus Christ shining through them. So let the focus of your family be upon the Son. And then finally, as we could have a myriad application to this, put the focus of the church upon the King. My friends, Lord willing, we are going to be about King Jesus here in this church. The truth of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the joy of Jesus. The boat that is Riverside Baptist Church is attempting to boldly row in his direction. But this means rowing against the ever-shifting, world-attaching tide that is modern-day Christianity that plays lip service to the Savior but does not listen to Him as King. We need everyone in the boat, helping us row it towards the Lord and His will. But we cannot have people standing on the dock, undecisive over whether or not they can be on mission. We need everyone to jump aboard. And we must all stop looking backwards to yesterday. And we must stop complaining about the current that is around us. And we must put our hands to work together at the oars. Oh Lord, let the focus of this church be the pleasure of your Son. May what you treasure be what we treasure. May what you delight in be what we delight in. We recognize that we are helpless without the work of your Spirit. And so we pray, would you please work? Would you help us to be a church that doesn't go through the motions? To be a church that isn't a a social club, but to be a church, Lord, that is about the King, in love together, lifting up His name, growing in His strength, and going to others with the joy that we have found in Jesus. Thank you for this truth in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.